This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight, we apply our patent-pending Stanley rubric to another Alfred Hitchcock film, this one from 1948, celebrating its 75th anniversary on September 25th. Directed by Alfred Hitchcock, it's Rope. Screenplay by Arthur Lawrence, adaptation by Hume Cronin, Starring James Stewart, John Dahl, and Farley Granger. This movie is notable for its long takes that are cut together to make it appear as one continuous shot. So let's start here, Dad. This is our seventh time discussing an Alfred Hitchcock movie so far on the show, and we have plenty of his library yet to cover. What makes his movies, in this case 75 years later, so rewatchable and discussable? Well, he always seemed to take a subject we're talking about how popular true crime podcasts are and how true crime television shows are. And the popularity of television shows like Law & Order that has been on, I think, since like 1955, the aspect of what he's talking about, murder, suspense, the macabre, has always been something that stirs the American prurient interests. And so Hitchcock always has that, but he's such a master and he was always trying to do something unique, different, almost provocative. And the way that he filmed this was done differently than anything that was done before to try to see if there was some way he could do or do a technique that would be unique and exceptional. And what ended up happening, I think, is is he probably, I think to his own statement, probably overthought it. Well, I think there is something to be said that this is generally entertaining to the majority of, I guess in this case, mostly Americans, even though he was a British director, he seemed to have an unusual appeal with the regular American masses. I think a lot of his films were known as popular instead of artistic, which I think in hindsight, really wouldn't be the case. I think he's thought of more now as artistic as opposed to popular, even though I think his movies have endured by leaps and bounds compared to a lot of his contemporaries. I would agree. I think there was a tendency to deadpan him as being something that appealed more to the masses instead of looking at the films for what they were, which was where each masterpieces of use of camera, of visual of cinematography, and minimalist of sound and voice using lines, doing more by visual and facial expression than any other director of his generation. And again, I would also put that a lot of these movies have either very simple premises or are executed from a very simple standpoint. And so unlike a lot of other movies that are considered artistic, the entrance point or the accessibility of his movies is a lot easier for the audience to buy into than a lot of other quote-unquote artistic films. I think to some extent, it's amazing when you're talking about fine art. Norman Rockwell 
has become considered one of the great American artists. Well, he painted for the cover of the Saturday Evening Post. He was not considered a great artist by his contemporaries. Subsequently, his stature as an artist has increased. Same thing can be said by a lot of writers. Mickey Spillane, Norman Chandler were considered dime store novelists of no great skill. And as time has gone by and you've been separated from the fact that they were more popular, their writing styles and their abilities have become more pronounced and more appreciated. So we already made allusions to the fact that this is a little bit different as far as the technique and the style that was used to make this movie. What makes Rope different than most of the other Hitchcock films we've discussed up to this point? Well, I think this is an adaptation of a play. The other main one that I can think of that was an adaptation of a play was Dial M for Murder, which we've done. Dial M for Murder was done a little more conventional, although even Dial M for Murder had scenes that were filmed specifically for 3D audiences. So he was willing to to experiment with that. The only other film that he did that was within confines, and that's to some extent probably why the adaptation was done by Hume Cronin in retrospect, was Lifeboat, which uh, was 1943, and Hume Cronin starred in that film. And uh, one of the reasons that most people think Hitchcock selected him for the adaptation, Hume Cronin had never done anything like an adaptation before. He just happened to be very close with Hitchcock, had done some writing, had a few short stories published, but he was selected out of the blue by Hitchcock to do this film. And in part because I think Hitchcock perceived that, or two things, one, he liked working with Hume Cronin because he, they were had a good relationship. And two, he just thought he had a feel for working within the confines of a, of a small stage. So we've had some other notable films in recent history that have gotten a lot of prestige on the backing that they are filmed as, or for that matter, edited, as if they were done in one continuous take. The two most notable ones that come to mind for me are Birdman, because of its selective editing, and then as well, more recently, 1917, with Roger Deakins winning Best Cinematography for that particular year. This is not a technique that had been done up to this point, and I think this film is notable because, and we're going to definitely get onto this a little bit more in some of the background of the the movie, film was only able to be done up to about 10 or 11 minutes per reel before you had to change them. So the availability of trying to stitch together things that would be one continuous take was much more difficult. But by some of the either soft cuts focusing in on a certain point where you could do a easy fade to black and then come pull back out of it, or they did have a couple of hard cuts within the course of the movie, it still feels as if, for the most part, we've been confined to one room and really are viewing this movie as we would a stage play. Even the system by which he used to film it, which is basically he created a stage which had two rooms and a third room that you could only see from a 90 degree angle. And he created it with like a track or a railroad and that allowed a a wheeled cart to go back and forth and move 
with the camera set and they could use to move around to center up the photo depending on where the actors were blocked. But also all of the furniture and all of the walls, the setting, were completely removable and were on wheels during the entire course of filming so that they could be moved out of the way for what was unconventional at the time, basically a non-steady camera shot or a handheld type of situation. I know I read a piece or a quote from Farley Granger's autobiography was published in the 70s where he said that he believed that Rope could have been a lot bigger commercial success if it had been filmed more conventionally because he thought it struck a chord with the public, but that it was so different and so odd that a lot of people had trouble with it. And so it was not something that people went and watched and then did by word of mouth. Oh, you've got to see this film. They would go and watch it and then go, it's strange how it's done. So with every Alfred Hitchcock movie that we've covered and probably everyone we will cover, my entire relationship to this movie is through you. So let me ask you, what is your relationship to this movie? I I watched a few of the early Hitchcock films, fell in love with Hitchcock. Several of his films were presented at Beloit College, Go Buccaneers. So I fell in love with him, and I made a point back, I think actually when your mother and I were dating, and I would record films off of WGN on VHS and bring my... VHS recorder with me to visit her when I'd drive three hours from Milwaukee to La Crosse while we were dating and then when we were first married. And I'd plug in and we'd watch films or old films. And so I'd watch these. So I I believe I first watched Rope. It happened to be on back when American Movie Classics AMC was actually showing old movies before Turner even came out. I want to say this was on. And because it was Hitchcock, I watched it, and I was just mesmerized by the cinematography, the, the, the staging, and to some degree, the acting. And I know that uh, we'll get into the best performances and all that at some or here later, but one actor just always made me both have a level of admiration and creeped me out at the same time. So then what do you think this movie is about? It's about murder, it's about conceit, and believing that one is better than his contemporaries and has some ability to dictate how life will be or should be. I think if you're looking for a particular theme, I would say it's either pride or hubris that first come to mind. If I'm looking for more of a plot reduction, I would say it's two partners in crime that can't agree after the fact on anything going forward. I mean, realistically, this movie boils down to one feels guilt of their actions because he's the one that actually committed the true crime, while the other one is boastful and rather flippant about his actions. Correct. So let's get some more background then on the film. Do you have a plot summary ready for us? I do. Philip Morgan... Farley Granger and Brandon Shaw, John Dull, strangle a mutual friend to death with a piece of rope to experience the supremacy of murder. Planning to capitalize on this experience, the two plan a dinner party upon the very chest where they have laid the victim. To make matters worse, the pair welcome their invited guests 
including the victim's oblivious fiance, Joan Chandler, the victim's parents, and the college professor, James Stewart, whose lectures inadvertently inspired the killing. Will the two succeed and prove their superiority, or will they fail and prove the folly of their efforts? Thank you. Cast for this movie, Alfred Hitchcock as director, Hume Cronin as credited for the adaptation, Arthur Lawrence, screenplay, James Stewart as Rupert Cadell, John Dahl as Brandon Shaw, Farley Granger as Philip Morgan, Joan Chandler as Janet Walker, Sir Cedric Hardwick as Mr. Henry Kentley, Constance Collier as Mrs. Anita Atwater, Douglas Dick as Kenneth Lawrence, Edith Evenson as Mrs. Wilson, and Dick Hogan as David Kentley. Recognition for this movie? Rope was wide released on September 25th, 1948. According to Warner Brothers Records, the film earned $2 million domestically and $720,000 overseas, making it outside the top 15 of 1948. In Rope Unleashed, screenwriter Arthur Lawrence attributed this failure to audience uneasiness with the homosexual undertones in the relationship between the two lead characters. Roger Ebert wrote in 1984, quote, Alfred Hitchcock called Rope an experiment that didn't work out, and he was happy to see it kept out of release for most of three decades, but went on to also say, quote, Rope remains one of the most interesting experiments ever attempted by a major director working with big box office names, and it's worth seeing. Rope currently holds a 92% on Rotten Tomatoes among critics, a 73 score on Metacritic, and a 4.1 out of 5 on Letterboxd. Did you know? This was Alfred Hitchcock's first movie in color. Did you know? This movie is very different from Patrick Hamilton's play of the same name. Alfred Hitchcock made his own adaptation with Hume Cronin, and they created new dialogue and characters for their adaptation. In the play, there is no Janet Walker, no Mrs. Wilson, no Kenneth Lawrence, and no Mrs. Atwater. The play takes place in England. Brandon Shaw is Wyndham Brandon, and Philip Morgan is Charles Granillo. In the play, Rupert Cadell is only 29 years old, and he is the current teacher of only Wyndham Brandon and Charles Granillo. In this movie, however, Rupert looks like he is at least around the age of his mid-40s, and Rupert has been the teacher of Brandon Shaw, Philip Morgan, Kenneth Lawrence, and David Kentley. In this movie, Rupert is also currently a publisher. Did you know? This movie was shot in 10 takes, ranging from 4.5 minutes to just over 10 minutes, the maximum amount of film that a camera magazine or projector reel could hold. At the end of the takes, the movie alternates between having the camera zoom into a dark object, totally blacking out the lens, and making a conventional cut. However, the second edit, ostensibly one of the conventional ones, was clearly staged and shot to block the camera, but the all-black frames were left out of the final print. Most of the props, and even some of the apartment set walls, were on casters, and the crew had to wheel them out of the way and back into position as the camera moved around the set. Did you know? Since the filming times were so long due to the elongated takes for each shot, everybody on the set tried their best to avoid any mistakes. At one point in the movie, the camera dolly ran over and broke a cameraman's foot, but to keep filming, he was gagged and dragged off. Another time, a woman puts her glass down but misses the table. A stagehand had to rush up and catch it before the glass hit the ground. Both parts are used in the final cut. Did you know? 
Alfred Hitchcock dismissed his experiment with 10-minute takes as being just a stunt. Did you know? In a Dick Cavett interview, Alfred Hitchcock seemed tired of answering the question on why he did the 10-minute takes, and his answer, through a bit of a sigh, was that it fit the framework of a stage play, and that it kept the actors alive, like a play. Did you know? Although this movie lasts 1 hour and 20 minutes and is supposed to be in real time, the time frame it covers is actually longer, a little more than 1 hour and 40 minutes. This is accomplished by speeding up the action, the formal dinner lasts only 20 minutes, and the sun sets too quickly, and so on. The September 2002 issue of Scientific American contains a complete analysis of this technique and the effect it has on the viewers who actually feel as if they watched a 1 hour and 40 minute movie. Did you know? Screenwriter Arthur Lawrence claimed that originally Alfred Hitchcock assured him the movie wouldn't show the opening murder, therefore creating doubt as to whether the two leading characters actually committed the murder and whether the trunk had a corpse inside. Did you know? This movie was banned in several American cities because of the implied homosexuality of Philip, Farley Granger, and Brandon, John Dahl. Did you know? This movie was unavailable for three decades because its rights, together with four other movies of the same period, were bought back by Alfred Hitchcock and left as part of his legacy to his daughter, Patricia Hitchcock. They've been known for a long time as the infamous Five Lost Hitchcocks amongst movie buffs and were re-released in theaters around 1984 after a 30-year absence. Can you name the other movies, Dad? Rear Window. Correct. Vertigo. Correct. The Birds. No. Okay. Notorious. Nope, you're too far back now. The Man okay. Who Knew Too Much, the U.S. version from 1956, yep. which yep. we've covered on the show, and The Trouble with Harry from oh, 1955. Yeah, right. Yep, which is one of the Hitchcock films I have never seen. Did you know? This was the only movie James Stewart made with Alfred Hitchcock that he did not like. Stewart later admitted he felt he was miscast as the professor. He makes his first entrance 28 minutes into the movie. Did you know? Screenwriter Arthur Lawrence assures that in the original play, the character of Cadell, played by James Stewart, allegedly had an affair with one of the two murderers while in school. Did you know? Montgomery Clift was the original choice to play Brandon, and Cary Grant was the original choice for Rupert. Did you know? Alfred Hitchcock made an opening romantic scene in Central Park with Joan Chandler, Janet Walker, and Dick Hogan, David Kentley. The scene was used for the 1948 promotional trailer, but deleted from the movie. Did you know? The theatrical trailer features footage shot specifically for the advertisement that takes place before the beginning of the movie. David, the victim, sits on a park bench and speaks with Janet before leaving to meet Brandon and Philip. James Stewart narrates the sequence, noting that's the last time Janet and the audience would see him alive. Did you know? The Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman film of which Janet Walker and Mrs. Atwater are struggling to remember the title of, for Mr. Cadell, is Notorious from 1946, which was also directed by Alfred Hitchcock. And with that, we'll take our first break, and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode... Next week, we will be starting our Journalism Month, starting with James L. Brooks's classic, Broadcast News, for its 35th anniversary. Written and directed by James L. Brooks, starring Holly Hunter, William Hurt, and Albert Brooks. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. 
Let's go to best performance then. Dad, who do you have down? I actually have John Dahl. I know there was a lot of critical acclaim for Farley Granger's performance in this, but John Dahl, every line he gave and that very sly little smile he had was so creepy, and it just portrayed the character so well that I had no choice ultimately to prick him as the best performance. He so performed this over the top of what it should be without being outlandish. I mean, his ability to just be that slimy uh, know-it-all was so good, and his delivery of the obnoxious, cynical lines was so well-paced and on point that I just thought his performance was overwhelming. I think he is the central figure that takes up more oxygen in the room than just about anybody in this film. And while I didn't go with him for either best performance or best secondary, I think he very well could have been either one of those. It was because I was specifically pigeonholing him into most charismatic. Every scene, he takes up all the oxygen in the room with his just smarminess. Yes, that's a good term. It's engrossing. You equally want to hate him and see him undone for his hubris and his pride. But at the same time, you feel this uneasiness because you don't exactly want them to get caught either. And it's a real trick of filmmaking to be able to have a movie that you're fighting against yourself while watching it. Mm-hmm. I, I, I understand perfectly. It's one of the great thrills of watching this film repeatedly as I have over the years. And it's why I went with Alfred Hitchcock as my best performer, because I think he gets the most out of what could be in anybody else's hands, a rather simple movie. But by his technical hand, pushing the boundaries of what he was able to do up to that point, thinking of a complete new method that nobody had even attempted or been close to up to this point in order to get the maximized value out of his screenplay, I thought was ingenious. It adds additional layers onto this movie. Otherwise, it would just be another background film. I don't think that the editing and cinematography legacy that this movie has would be necessarily as high if it were in anybody else's hands. And so I think from all those standpoints, I felt almost compelled to go in that direction. No, I understand, and that'll explain, I think, a lot of your points, but from a different angle slightly, we'll get to my most charismatic. So you and I probably just flipped where we were at on that one. Yes. So, interestingly, I actually put Hume Cronin as the best secondary, because I looked at and kind of just briefly skimmed the original version of the play, it's much more straightforward. It has less characters. It has less character development. And I think that for an hour and 20 minute movie, you get to meet all like eight or nine characters in this movie and pretty much understand all of them and what makes them tick. And by extension, I think that's just some absolutely fantastic writing to be able to come up with that many new characters but not make the movie feel that much longer. For an hour and 20 minute movie, you feel like you get enough screen time with just about every character, even though some of them are only in the movie for about 20 minutes. And I I think to some extent, Hume Cronin 
was so close in his relationship with Hitchcock because this was not the only film they collaborated on. I mean, as I indicated, he had done Lifeboat and then had been collaborating on others. Hugh Cronin had been with Hitchcock and his wife. And then Jessica Tandy, who was Hume Cronin's wife, famously from Driving Miss Daisy into the 90s. They were so close with Hitchcock, he knew what Hitchcock was thinking and could anticipate creating and writing in such a way that it would enhance and further his ideas, his concepts, and his blocking of the shots. He knew what would show and what would not show well in a Hitchcock film. So who's your best secondary then? Farley Granger. He did a very phenomenal job of being the sniveling, regretting character that was completely in remorse and self-loathing throughout the film. He didn't overplay it, played it very tactfully, but at times his meltdowns were so precise and right on point for somebody that's supposed to be intellectual and controlling and able to limit his emotions, that it was such a a unique performance. I understand why the critics really raved about his performance, but uh, I think it was secondary to Dahl simply because Dahl had such an ability to be somebody you loved and hated at the same time. There was just a certain sympathy that you drew from Granger because even though you're like repulsed by what he's done, you still had some level of sympathy for him. So then we already got my most charismatic. Who was yours? Uh, I had Hitchcock. And the reason I went with Hitchcock is, again, because this foretold a large aspect, not only of Hitchcock, but of filmmaking in general, to show the actual murder itself with the rope was an advance in filmmaking. He did it repeatedly throughout the 40s and 60s. I mean, he didn't really show the murder itself, but he implied most of it in Psycho. But you think about the murders that took place north by northwest in The Man Who Knew Too Much, in Rear Window. Well, I guess not really in Rear Window per se. Or north by northwest. You don't see a single murder in North by Northwest. Yes, you do. When Townsend's murdered in the United Nations building. You don't see it. You do not see the knife plunged into his back. You just see him collapse into Cary Grant. All right. Okay. I I guess to some extent it's more implied, but maybe it's... Maybe uh, this went a little further than Hitchcock decided he needed to in the subsequent films. But it's still... I think this was a predecessor for so much and for so many films as far as horror, suspense, and, uh, you know, the whole genre. I think the whole, but for Hitchcock, you do not have films like Scream or Halloween. So let's move to best scene then, which is hard to discern given that this is supposed to be a one-shot continuous take film. But I have six here down, and you can certainly add to this if you need to. So the scene we just talked about, David's murder. I think the next one that you can maybe differentiate is setting up for the party. Then there's Kenneth and Janet. 
when they're both introduced and they first make their appearances. Strangling chickens, which I think is kind of the first real inclination that this whole plan is going to unravel for the two of them. Murder for the superior few, and that's the Nietzsche discussion that they have about two-thirds of the way into the film. And then finally, Rupert returns. So the basically the last 15 or 20 minute sequence when he comes back to look for his cigarette case. Yes. Did I miss any? No, I think that pretty much kind of breaks up the film adequately. So I could have gone in a few different directions for best scene on this one, and I'm still a little bit torn because I think that the murder for Superior Few is a very well done scene because you have to get a righteous indignation from one character. You have to have a character who's both balancing being joking on top of also being somewhat serious and that he's somehow agreeing with the, the philosophy of the two murderers. You have to have them trying to sell their point of view. And so there's a lot going into that scene, but I really think that if you're going to have your star be the top billing on the movie, the most involvement and the best work that he does in this movie is about the last 15 minutes. So I'm going to go with Rupert Returns and his self-righteous speech that he essentially gives to the two of them as he slowly tries to unmask them for what they've actually done. Well, for me, best scene is the just the conversations setting up the party because I think there are so many lines that are unique, special, and stand out. And you really see the character development of Brandon and Philip that really sets the tone of the rest of the film. As far as favorite scene, I think I'll go back to the discussion on the superior few and murder. I think for me, that's one of the more enjoyable scenes because of the repartee between all parties accounted for during that sequence. I agree. I, the comments about Hitler and, and this being post-World War II and, and what was taking place, I, I think there's some level of poignancy to totalitarianism, even as it exists today and seems to permeate politics around the world, if not in this country. But for me, the most indelible moment is Rupert firing the gun at the end, because it just leaves you with this lingering feeling. First off, you've been waiting the entire time to see when the gun is going to be fired, and you kind of are upended a little bit when Rupert points to the gun and says, are you planning to shoot me? And then he throws it onto the piano, only for fairly Granger Philip to grab the gun and try and do something with it, then there to be a struggle. So you've been basically toying with this gun and it potentially going off for about 10 minutes, changing hands repeatedly, up until that final moment where he feels that self-righteousness and says they're both going to die. And what is he going to do with the gun? He bangs open the window and he shoots it off. And then we are left with just sitting with this sinking feeling that they have to sit with their crime and their shame and their embarrassment that the one person particularly Brandon, wanted to impress. The one person they thought that would be on their side feels nothing but absolute disgust towards them. It, it is the best scene. It's by far. 
I mean, it would have been so easy for Rupert to have went over to the phone and called the police or done something else. But the fact that Rupert uses an element, a point of potential violence to disclose their behavior, to trigger the response by common society and law enforcement, that just was a unique and poignant scene. I think it so much summarized the basis of the film, which is that ultimately violence will be overtaken by society and righteousness. And that'll take us to our second break. We'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, a quick shout out to our first listener in Namibia. Welcome. Thank you for making us part of your routine. That is now the 92nd different country our show has now been heard in, and we hope to continue to grow that number year after year. Thank you to all of our thousands of listeners so far. Namibia, the country that was a part of the Russian, or excuse me, the German Empire at the end of World War I became a protectorate of the British and was governed by South Africa. I think it's been a independent country since the 70s. That sounds like a lot of countries in Africa. Yeah. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Unfortunately, we do. Venetia Stevenson, 84, an English-American actress. She was in Day of the Outlaw, Seven Ways from Sundown. The sergeant was a lady. Her nickname was the most photogenic girl in the world. She had been uh, originally married to Don Everly, but she had been in a relationship with Tab Hunter, and uh, she would frequently double date with Tab Hunter and Tony Perkins. Tony Perkins and Tab Hunter were in a relationship that gave cover to them to go out and about Hollywood. So she had a fairly interesting career over a very short period of time and kind of stepped away from acting for the last part of her life. She was daughter to Anna Lee, who happened to star in How Green Was My Valley and was on a General Hospital for over a quarter century. Her father was Robert Stevenson, the Oscar-nominated director of Mary Poppins. Okay. I, I was not overly familiar with her, but her photo, she was incredibly beautiful. And so it's easy to understand how she was the most photogenic girl in the world. We also lost Rita Gardner, 87, an American actress, a family affair, the wedding singer, little voice. And then uh, she was primarily a, a Broadway stage actress, but she did uh, a lot of parts later on in Law and Order. And she was the voice of Grandma Fox on Dora the Explorer. She was an original member of the Fantastics, uh, a group that I'm not particularly familiar with, but apparently was a Harvey Schmidt and Tom Jones musical. Robert Cormier, 33, a Canadian actor, was in a television show, Heartland, which has been a long-running series on the CBC. Apparently, he had become a recent love interest of one of the main characters in its, like, 15th or 16th season, and he was set to be a part of the new season that's coming out here in the next week or so. Obviously, this will create quite a kerfuffle on the show, and 
for those interested or who are longtime fans of the show, I'm sure that uh, you'll be interested to see how that transpires. We also lost Zach Estrin, 51, American television writer and producer. Uh, he was uh, actively involved in Prison Break, Charmed, and Lost in Space. He specifically got his start on Prison Break, but one of his personal projects was the reboot of Lost in Space that took place over three seasons, I think, on Netflix. Okay. And then uh, we also lost uh, Academy Award-winning actress Louise Fletcher. She was 88, uh, won the Academy Award for her performance in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. She also had a long run uh, on Star Trek Deep Space Nine and was in Brainstorm. As I indicated, she won the Oscar in 1976. She was nominated for two Emmys for her performances on a show from the 90s, Picket Fences, and another show that was on briefly, Joan of Arcadia. Obviously, her most notable character is Nurse Ratched, the absolutely abhorrent nurse in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest that had a recent reprisal, I guess is the best way to put it, uh, of the individually devoted TV show on Netflix for anybody who watched that in the last couple of years. So we remember all of these here for their contributions to TV and film and for their performances with a moment of silence in their honor. Thank you. Let's move to best lines. My first one up, Rupert and Janet. Rupert, Brandon's spoken of you. Janet, did he do me justice? Rupert, do you deserve justice? Brandon, there are those men of such intellectual and cultural superiority that they're above the traditional moral concepts. Good and evil, right and wrong, were invented for the ordinary average man, the inferior man, because he needs them. Mr. Kentley, then obviously we would agree with Nietzsche in his theory of the Superman. Brandon, yes, I do. Mr. Kentley, so did Hitler. Brandon, Hitler was a paranoid savage. His supermen, all fascist supermen, were brainless murderers. I'd hang any who were left. But then, you see, I'd hang them first for being stupid. I'd hang all incompetents and fools anyway. There are far too many in the world. Mr. Kenley, then perhaps you should hang me too, Brandon. Mrs. Atwater, do you know, when I was a girl, I used to read quite a bit. Brandon, we all do strange things in our childhood. Brandon, we killed for the sake of danger and for the sake of killing. Brandon, I've always wished for more artistic talent. Well, murder can be an art too. The power to kill can be just as satisfying as the power to create. Rupert, by what right do you dare to say that there's a superior few to which you belong? Rupert again. Personally, I think a chicken is as good a reason for murder as a blonde, a mattress full of dollar bills, or any of the customary, unimaginative reasons. Janet. Well, now, you don't really approve of murder, Rupert, if I may. You may, and I do. Think of the problems it would solve. Unemployment, poverty, standing in line for theater tickets. Rupert. It's not what I'm going to do, Brandon. It's what society is going to do. I don't know what that will be, but I can guess, and I can help. 
You're going to die, Brandon. Both of you. You are going to die. You read that very differently than James Stewart, who is yelling it. Yes. Brandon, it's the darkness that's got you down. Nobody feels really safe in the dark. I'm out. Okay, well, I have a couple here. Brandon, the good Americans usually die young on the battlefield, don't they? Well, the Davids of this world merely occupy space, which is why he was the perfect victim for the perfect murder. Of course, he, uh, he was a Harvard undergraduate. That might make it a justifiable homicide. Janet, I could really strangle you, Brandon. What have I done now? At times, your sense of humor is a little too malicious, chum. I particularly like that one because I feel I should use that when somebody is um, a little bit too harsh with their jokes. Brandon, that's the difference between us and the ordinary men, Philip. They talk about committing the perfect crime, but nobody does it. And then finally, dramatic performances by Tom. Rupert Cadell. Brandon, till this very moment, this world and the people in it have always been dark and incomprehensible to me. I've tried to clear my way with logic and superior intellect, and you've thrown my words back in my face, Brandon. You were right, too. If nothing else, a man should stand by his words. But you've given my words a meaning that I never dreamed of, and you've tried to twist them into a cold, logical excuse for your ugly murder. Well, they never were that, Brandon, and you can't make them that. There must have been something deep inside you from the very start that let you do this thing. But there's always been something deep inside me that would never let me do it, and would never let me be party to it now. I mean that tonight that you've made me ashamed of every concept I ever had of superior or inferior beings. But I thank you for that shame, because now I know that we are all, each of us, a separate human being, Brandon with the right to live and work and think as individuals, but with an obligation to the society we live in. By what right do you dare to say that there's a superior few to which you belong? By what right did you decide that that boy in there was inferior and could be killed? Did you think you were God, Brandon? Is that what you thought you were when you choked the life out of him? Is that what you thought when you served food from his grave? I don't know who you are, but I know what you've done. You've murdered. You choked the life out of a fellow human being who could live and love as you never could and never will again. All right, let's go to the Stanley rubric then. Legacy is up first. For me, the industry, I think, has come around on this a little bit more. I think I'm a little bit mixed. I don't think it can go up quite to a five. Because I don't think that there's full appreciation for one of, or this as one of Hitchcock's great movies. I think that it's kind of in this tweener zone among the strangers on a train. It's basically in that tier two of the great Hitchcock classics. But it's not in that peak, like Mount Rushmore of Hitchcock classics. And to be fair, the fact that we even have a tier one and a tier two and a tier three of one particular director's movies should say enough about that particular person already. But by comparing his own work against itself somewhat, and I think you have to do that to be accurate, this doesn't quite raise to that level. And while it does have 
from a technical standpoint, a certain legacy among editing and cinematography, I still don't think it rises quite to the level of a five. So I went with a four for the industry. For the audience, I think that people know certain Hitchcock movies. I think you can mention the titles, Rear Window, North by Northwest, Psycho, The Birds, and most people will have heard of these movies. Even something like A Dial M for Murder has more notoriety than Rope. It's just not a movie that is widely known among non-industry or cinephile groups of people. And even from the standpoint that it wasn't available for over 30 years, while certain cinephiles were going to know of this movie, it just was kind of lost to the public in a way that Vertigo or Rear Window was not. So I think it only gets about a 1.5 from the audience because it has very little name recognition. I think even less people have probably seen it, even though it's a great movie and it's been more on a comeback trail like some of the other ones since it's re-release in 84. I just don't think it quite has the same staying power as some of the other ones, even though you and I like it. So that's a 5.5 overall for me. I agree with your public assessment. I also had a 1.5 for the public. You know, I've shown or had people watch this film or suggested this film to people. And when people watch it, they actually seem to enjoy it because it doesn't have the shock value that it probably did in 1948, but it did have or does have some appreciation among film nerds, cinemaphiles. So I went with a 1.5. For the industry, there's still a lot of mixed reviews. And I I didn't quite go to the same level you did. I actually think it's a 3.5 because I think there's a quite a, a large portion of the industry and of the critics and such who did pan this as being Hitchcock, but over the top and more violent and graphic than his subsequent films. There wasn't the same nuance. I mean, the fact that you mentioned this as tier two, I think is applicable. So I wanted 3.5, so I wanted a five total. So I really don't know, just to push back a little bit, why this would be considered more violent than North by Northwest that has a lot more action sequences and a lot more physical altercations. Or, for that matter, the other movie that we mentioned before that was based on a play, Dial M for Murder, that has a literal stabbing in it. I know, but for some reason this is more raw. I think to me the thing that you could maybe harp on this for is is that because of the use of the elongated takes, it doesn't have the same signature flares from Hitchcock. The close-up shots, the close-up to faces that are staring down the camera that he uses in a lot of his movies, certain things that were notable qualities of Hitchcock movies. And I think this looks differently by comparison because he pushed the envelope on the technical aspect in this particular film. And I think that might be where some of the criticism is. But by that same token, it's the other thing that kind of lifts this up. And so I think it's kind of in between It's not going to reach the high highs, but I don't think it also can be pushed too far down either. But regardless, that's a 5.25 between us. Well, and and to that comment, I would point out Hitchcock films are unique in that the tension, the 
suspense builds over the course of the film, but there are moments by scene where it will spike and then it will release. And you'll come down from that spike, but it will never get back to the, the base where you started before the film. So if you started at zero, you have a scene, it'll go up to a three, and it'll drop down to a one. But you're at that one. Now you keep going along there, all of a sudden you spike and it's up to a four. Now it drops down to a two. And that's the difference. This film started out going to about an eight and then kind of tipping down, but the rest of the thing was high suspense. There's no point in this film where you have the release of that suspense and tension because you know what's in the chest. You know all the actors are portraying. The closest you have is to the scene where the housekeeper is going to open the trunk to put the books in, and it's dispensed with by Brandon. That's the only scene in the entire film where it builds to a crescendo, and then that tension is released somewhat. I wouldn't even say it's released. I would say it's stunted. I guess that's really a better way of putting it. Because I think that's really the one significant time in the movie where Hitchcock does not focus on his actors. He focuses subtly on her cleaning up the table and then bringing all the books back to put them in the chest. And that's deliberate in order to build up that exact tension that you're talking about. It's literally a Chekhov's gun with the body in the room the entire time. Yes, I understand. So impact significance. I went with a three for the industry. As you mentioned, mixed reviews at the time, or at least continuing mixed reviews, but at the time, this was really kind of an up-and-down film as far as the critics were concerned. It had very low attention and had no awards recognition at all, which is unusual for a lot of Hitchcock films. They have at least something to their name. The fact that this isn't considered for some larger prestigious award or even something minor given the technical aspects i just don't think that necessarily sits well and due to the rather low box office i had to go for a 1.5 on the audience for this for a 4.5 overall it just it was not a significant movie at the time i think if it's grown at all it's grown in stature among the industry and that's about it well, the next review is I had a three for the industry, but I, you know, was finished within the top fifteen. You you seem to forget it did that, not finish in the top fifteen. I thought you said that it was no. I said it finished outside of the top fifteen, and it was a notable failure. Oh, uh, well, I, I think that there was some aspect that it was at least somewhat viewed. I wouldn't say it was a complete failure. I think it was not as big a box office as they would like. So I went with a two for the public, five overall for impacted significance at the time. So that's a 4.75 between the two of us. Novelty. While it's based on a play, it's really nothing like the play. The play is more or less the shell and they ripped out all of the guts and then put in some new parts and kind of kept the rough outline of the of the play but not necessarily the intent or a lot of the dialogue so 
you can't judge this in the same way that you have others that are adapted on previous works. I do also think the technical aspect really raises the stature of the novelty in this movie. The long takes are unique, and there's a real flair to everything that's done within this movie as a result of that, that was completely unheard of up to this point. So while I don't feel that justifies a full 10, partly due to some of the execution, I wouldn't say this is a perfectly executed movie. I will say a 9 feels warranted. Okay. When you think of it, I, I mean, I, I this is based on a play, but it's also based on a true story. Leopold and Loeb from the 1920s. This started the basic film of true story crime drama. It's graphic in nature of the murder, which I think foreshadowed a long lineage towards the horror films of today. I think that it's most unique because of that, but because it still is an adaptation of both a play and a true story, I can't give it a complete 10. So that's why I went with a 9, but it is very unique and very novel as to how it was shot, how it was presented, and how it was done. And really, even though you say that it's adapted from a true crime type of situation, it's very far from any of the circumstances that it's allegedly based upon. Other than the fact that you had two wealthy students of upper middle class or upper class lifestyle killing somebody else, the circumstances are almost entirely different. Correct, because in the case of Leopold and Loeb, uh, at least one, I think maybe both of them were law school students, which having been in law school, it could almost drive you to kill. But, um, classicness, your category. There is so much of this film that still exists. There's this aspect of culture yet today of the Superman applying Nietzsche. And whether you see it on talk radio or on or opinionated television. Or somebody suggesting driver immunity day. Yeah, well, I know. Yeah. It's just a certain thing that you kind of appreciate that this continues, this debate, where there's a contemplation that there's a set of elites who get to just dictate to the rest of us what life is, how life should be lived, and how uh, society should behave. And we continue in that vein. I could not think of anything other than that. I mean, we're talking about upper class society in the late 1940s, post-World War II in New York. I can't necessarily find fault with a period piece. It's not like they were going to have a large relationship with African-Americans or other minorities. The fact that two of the characters in this who played a significant portion were female, I think is good. I gave it a nine for classicness. All right. So I will see your nine and I will raise you slightly. I think that while this is clearly using the bones of a play from about 10 years prior that was loosely based on a crime from 24 years prior. There are elements of this which are currently relevant yet and were well ahead of its time. I think the notion of superior versus inferior human beings, as you mentioned, is still relevant. 
especially in a modern geopolitical culture that obviously is dabbling in some light fascism, as well as theories such as replacement theory that have made their way around the internet or even into a few Supreme Court decisions lately. Yeah. So this is not something that we're tiptoeing around. This is part and parcel, front and center of geopolitical culture. And by that extension, the people that think that they're all constantly left behind and that they're fighting the elites, this is part of the reason that they feel that way. Moreover, I also think the idea that while only implied of a homosexual relationship between Philip and Brandon, to say it was bold for the time would be a gross understatement. And it clearly feels very modern in how we currently have diversity in TV or film. So you could adjust your, let's say, diversity meter that we constantly bring up on classicness to account for them. That being said, the only drawbacks for me are in the tech of the time, as this would be obviously a different type of movie if we had cell phones or people were being able to be accounted for, that type of thing. And an all-white cast, with the majority of the characters being of high education and social status. I don't think that the average person can necessarily connect with the high-minded morals and the philosophical ramblings of Rupert or Mr. Kentley and Nietzsche. So I almost went a full 10 here, but I don't think this would have appeal to everyone, and thus, I'm going to go with a well-earned 9.5, and that's a 9.25 between us. Rewatchability, short, sweet, to the point, good dialogue, not much setup, and it's entertaining. Essentially, it's a Hitchcock movie. And while it's not one of my favorite Hitchcocks, it's easily rewatchable. I'll go with an 8. I'm a little more critical because I'm such a Hitchcock fan and there's so many Hitchcock films that I enjoy. I still consider this film something that I tend to watch every three to five years. It's kind of a regular thing. I'll revisit. I've probably watched it since I first saw it four or five times, but I can't go quite to an eight. I go with the 7.5 because there are other Hitchcock films that I enjoy watching more, although I think this is an underrated Hitchcock film. So that's a 7.75 between us. Audience score, we had an 84% for Google users and a 90% for Rotten Tomato users for an 8.7 overall. So to recap the categories... We had a 5.25 for Legacy, a 4.75 for Impact Significance, a 9 for Novelty, 9.25 for Classicness, a 7.75 for Rewatchability, and an 8.7 for Audience Score, giving us a final total of 44.7. And that would currently place it on the list between Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and Gentleman's Agreement. Remaining questions. What do you have? I don't really have any specific other than there were bookshelves everywhere in that apartment. Why were they storing the first edition books, which are more valuable, in a chest as opposed to placing them on the shelf? Good call. Okay, so my biggest contention is if 
Rupert didn't actually want to justify murder, which if you just take his statements at face value, it seems like he does. Then what was he really trying to say? Well, as you and I have discussed a particular sports talk show, some people just want to be provocative because they think it makes them sound more important. And I think to some extent, that's Rupert. He tried to talk big in order to advance himself as being something more than he was. And when push came to shove, what his statements were were not consistent with what he really believed in his soul. Okay. So, in essence, he was just toying with the idea of the theoretical exercise as opposed to actual belief? Application. It's theory versus application. It's fun to present a theory. It's much different when that theory ends up being application. That's a really good way of putting it. My only other one, why would Brandon choose David to murder instead of Kenneth? Yeah, I know. I mean, obviously, there were a lot of people who were very motivated to maintain his health, security, and his well-being. You always, if you're trying to go for nondescript, go after people that don't have anybody to directly question and care about them. And by choosing the one where it's in your social circle, so already you're going to be fingerprinted a little bit, and then causing a ruckus, which already was way too far on the hubris scale for us to measure, and then putting it with all the people that he would or that he's clearly cared about by, I just, I don't quite understand that if they were going to pick one of their friends, they don't pick the lonesome guy who doesn't talk to his best friend and dumped his former girl. I, I understand your point, but maybe that's too easy. Maybe their hubris had to go to such an extent that they had to pick somebody that they could slyly rejoice in the pain and sorrow that they created among the people they were around. But they immediately justify it in setting up the party, him being a complete nobody. And that just does not seem to be the case. I know. I mean, what is a nobody, I guess, ultimately? All right. Remaining thoughts for the week. Uh, nothing. I'm looking forward to Journalism Month. I haven't seen broadcast news in a number of years, so I'm looking forward to watching that this week. And uh, some of the other films we have, we're firmly getting into uh, the final pace or the final part of the year. We'll be looking at dealing with things around Thanksgiving and then ultimately Christmas. I noted at my uh, staff meeting 10 days ago, actually, from when we're releasing this, that it was 90 days till Christmas Eve. So from today, it'll be 80 days until Christmas Eve when this is released. And that's a good note for us all. Christmas is coming. Apparently, we have to prepare this far in advance. As far as me, obviously, the seasons are changing, which is always kind of a new part of the year for me. As things kind of get colder, you get more tired, you feel it more in your bones a little bit as to where things are headed going into a winter cycle, particularly this week where it kind of flipped on a dime 
at least where I'm living. And from being kind of in the 80s all of last week to being suddenly in the, I think, mid-40s when I went out to check on my car this morning or get in the car to go to work. Wisconsin weather is a fickle thing, to say the least. That being said, I'll leave a small personal recommendation on a a TV show that I'm sure a lot of people are already on or watching, and so you probably don't need my recommendation. But as a fan of the Lord of the Rings movies, I personally recommend the TV show on Amazon at the moment. I think it does live up to the honor of the Peter Jackson films and introduces some nice characters that tie into the movies. And while it is somewhat of a prequel, it's far enough ahead of the trilogy of movies that it doesn't feel like it's treading on some of the original source material and can be its own thing. As opposed to the other prequel series at the moment on HBO for Game of Thrones that I just have had such a hard time connecting to due to the massive amounts of time jumps from episode to episode. So I think they need to clean that one up and maybe go back to the drawing board a little bit. I actually, for whatever reason, think that HBO lost this particular battle as it was posed a couple of weeks back when both shows debuted within a couple of weeks of each other. So that'll do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. Where are you headed, cowboy? Nowhere special? Nowhere special. I always wanted to go there. Next week, we will be starting our journalism month, starting with James L. Brooks's classic Broadcast News for its 35th anniversary. Written and directed by James L. Brooks, starring Holly Hunter, William Hurt, and Albert Brooks. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronniedunkinstudios.com or sign up for our newsletter, find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast, or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or now TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.